So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Man fans. I'm Ollie Mann, and this is The Modern Man, the monthly magazine for your ears. Here's what's coming up. All I could hear was my friend's mom panicking because I couldn't respond because I can't use my mouth, I can't use my jaw muscles, I can't physically speak. When falling asleep in front of the telly becomes falling asleep everywhere. What's it like living with narcolepsy? Plus... When somebody feels that way about a particular sex act, they want really full-on enthusiasm. Alex Fox on when it's right to pull out. And Ollie Peart sorts through his filth. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and thank you everybody who's corresponded to their congratulations to Mr Peart on his forthcoming issue. Um, I don't know why I'm talking this formal way. I am talking about baby, the, the baby that his fiance is pregnant with. Katie from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, says, Congratulations to Ollie Peart. My first child, Luke, was born last month. Congratulations to you, Katie. Uh, so, whilst these ideas are fresh in my mind, I would like to challenge Ollie to do the following. Throw his partner's baby shower... Is that a trend that's really stuck in the UK? Baby showers? I don't know. Uh, train with a doula to support his partner in birth... That would be hilarious, Katie. I am writing that one down. Uh, Throw a community baby shower, i.e. have people purchase diapers, wipes and other newborn essentials to give to charity. That's a great idea, isn't it? I've never heard of that before. Or live like a pregnant lady for a month, following all eating, drinking, movement and other restrictions. Uh, (laughs) That would be amazing. Uh, I suppose the issue there might be that if Ollie and his fiance are both struggling to get up the stairs, but he's faking it. I'm, I'm not sure diplomatically he'll be able to keep that challenge up for long in his own home. Actually, that reminds me, last time my wife was pregnant, I did promise her that I would match her drink for drink, i.e. obviously she wasn't drinking apart from a sip of champagne at a wedding or whatever. And I said, it's fine, I'll, just, I'll go zero alcohol as well for the next nine months literally lasted three weeks Uh, anyway do keep those ideas coming in we will put a first time fatherhood challenge to ollie soon and thank you katie as well for the beer money uh thank you everybody who sent us beer money recently remember it is your support that funds this show you know you can hear the ads and the sponsorships in the show but that's all the money we have coming in there's no one else propping this up except you guys so if you can afford to chuck us a couple of quid each month subscribe for a fiver per month i mean whatever you think you would pay for this magazine if it was in print form please do keep us afloat at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash beer. Uh, Big up to the newbies who have created recurring plans in the past few weeks, Tommy Herbert, Lee Myring and Dan Wigmore, and the PayPal massive Alex Turrell and Dale Harris. You are all astonishing people. Uh, In fact, 
Lee, I think, deserves special mention. Lee uh, wrote to me apologising for taking so long to donate because he's been listening to the show since the beginning, he says, but has never donated until now. So in addition to setting up his new monthly contribution, he sent us a backlog. He sent us a single donation equivalent to two years' worth of support. Lee, that is really great. Thank you so much. Uh, And you also requested to be ambassador for Frome in Somerset. Which I think I should resist, really, because A, the Manbassador thing's kind of an end-of-the-show thing. B, I feel like there should only really be one Manbassador per show to keep it special. And C, I don't want to imply any kind of cash-for-honours type system. But, fuck it, 200 quid, it's my show. Congratulations, Lee, you are Manbassador for Frome. Right, coming up today, you will learn... How to change the conversation about fertilisation. You will learn what sleep hygiene is and how to improve yours. And you'll learn how to make a really grim decorative mirror. Let's go. Right, time for the Zeitgeist, brought to you by Manscaped. And Ollie Pitt is here to test your trends. Hello, Ollie. I note that you've launched yet another podcast. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I'm a podcasting machine. It's called The Localist Dorset. And it's all about Dorsety stories, but it doesn't matter if you live here or not. Yeah, that's the same cell that I use for the retrospectus. It doesn't matter if you hate history, just fucking yes. listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. I've got an interview with BBC Somerset tonight, for goodness sake. So they're interested, you know, and they are miles away. So The Localist, is it a new kind of brand of BBC podcasts that they're wheeling out across all the local radio stations and you're hosting the Dorset one, is that right? Well, I was basically the, the experiment. So, oh, you're uh, the pilot. They, oh I'm my the god! Pilot. The BBC yeah, so they... has trusted you to launch a <laughs> nations and regions project. <laughs> what has gone wrong with our I public know, some... service broadcasting system? I, I, I think something got che- chewed up in the email thread where they sort of heard the word <laughs> podcaster and my name and just assumed that I knew what I was doing. I noticed that, like, you've been on social media promoting a, an episode in which you talk about rude place names. So, about ten miles from my house <laughs> is a real place called Shitterton. Um, and it, it, it's all sort of grounded here, if you like. And then we just talk to people who live in rude place names across uh, the whole country. And Give f- us another funny name. Uh, Wet Wang. Is that in Dorset? Uh, well, no, Wet Wang is up in uh, Yorkshire Way. Give me another one. Bell End. There's Bell End. There's, there's... <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Bell End one's really great because the lady that lived there basically put together a petition to keep the name because somebody who recently moved there wanted to change the name because they thought it was rude. And she was like, no. So she set up a petition to keep the name and then they kept the name. Uh, Right, last month you were challenged by Anna in Ealing to adapt a zero-waste lifestyle. Where did you start with this? My recycling bin. My recycling bin is in a a little area just adjacent to my kitchen, right? So it's very visible how much stuff we chuck in there. And I think about it quite a lot. I think, oh my God, it's like Amazon boxes, tins, plastic. The problem is that our recycling system... It just isn't very good. Greenpeace think that only 9% of the waste that you throw out in your recycling actually gets recycled. Some of it gets incinerated and then the rest will end up either being sent abroad and ending up in landfill or ending up in landfill here. I heard that they still haven't found a way to recycle black plastic trays. 
So every time I like wash out a black plastic tray that a ready meal came in or a piece of fish or something and think I'm doing the right thing, just because it's black, there isn't a way to do that yet. It, it depends on where you live a lot of the time as well. So you have to be really familiar with what you can recycle and what can go in, in whatever bin and how you need to divvy it up. It's all compost bins in uh, Shitterton. So I thought, well, this is an easy fix. This is, this is a doddle. So I got a veg box. I got a veg box. Oh, you got vegetables delivered to your house? In a box. They don't have any packaging. They're all organic. They're a little bit more expensive. But in my head, I imagine that they're more tasty because of that. So they, uh, yeah. they, they, I, so I thought, well, that's it. It's, it's, it's easy. I've got, I've got my veg box. It's done. However, I then just quickly realised that it's such a small percentage of the waste that I throw out in the first place. Because then there's things like tins and cartons and other things yeah. that you have in your, in your fridge. Plastic pots for hummus. Because, of course... I eat loads of hummus. Man can't grow a beard like that without chickpeas. But I found a website called uh, Trash is for Tossers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was founded in uh, back in 2014 by this woman called Lauren Singer, right? And she basically set up a blog about her, her journey to zero waste. And I found myself sort of just borrowing into this, this deep hole of loads of YouTube videos and listicles on things I could do with all of the waste make a pencil pot out of an old plastic bottle here's a really novel way to make hooks out some corks and stuff like that <laughs> i was just <laughs> and i was just watching all of these videos and then i just thought hang on this seems really pointless actually one of the examples was a decorative mirror using mm. old like paracetamol packets and stuff who who's going to make that and then put it in their bathroom because if I went round somebody's house and I saw a mirror like that in the bathroom, I would leave. I suppose also, like, philosophically, there's a bit of a clash in a way. Because although you're not buying the paracetamol box, especially to make the shit mirror, you'd be sort of better off buying one mirror in your entire life that was a really well-made artisan handcrafted mirror from your neighbourhood with no miles that you then stuck on your wall for 50 years. Reusing old waste is a good thing if you can get some longevity out of it and it actually serves a practical purpose. But a lot of the crafty stuff, it's not its not really helping anyone. You're just making some crap into some more crap that will still <laughs> ultimately end up in landfill. So what does solve the problem, Ollie Pitt? Refuse. Right. So you know you have the re- reduce, reuse, recycle thing. One of them yeah. is to refuse. So you refuse the waste. You don't bring the waste into your house in the first place. Refuse, not refuse. Re- it's clever, isn't it? Isn't that, it that's almost too clever, isn't it? Like hard to really read out correctly from a internet slogan. But there's also some really practical things that you can do sort of immediately to try and refuse things it, it, for waste that you might not consider waste, actually. Yeah. One of them is, is junk mail. Do you get junk mail? Yeah. I, I'm saying that yeah. with some positivity because I actually, I'm not a big hater of junk mail. I don't mind a bit mm. of extra fodder to read on the loo. I quite like being sent stuff that I haven't asked for. Just because occasionally it's quite amusing. <laughs> yeah, sure. But then then ultimately it ends up in a recycling bin. I stopped buying the Sunday Times for that reason. Like too many sections, don't need that many, don't need all the stuff falling out of the magazine. Started buying the Observer instead because it was more compact. Genuinely made that choice for that reason. I love that that's the Ollie Man route to environmentalism, buying a slightly smaller newspaper. Every little helps. But with the junk, with the junk mail stuff, you can, you can literally, you can take a step right now to stop junk mail getting sent to your front door. It's the Mail Preference Service. So it's mpsonline.org. 
I sound like Amazing. Martin's money to say, You say it's just as I was just thinking this is like Watchdog. But I like that we've got a bit that's like, you know, it doesn't always have to be rock and roll and flight simulators. Yeah. Why not do some consumer advice? But you just go along there and they basically, they remove you off these these email lists that you've been put on through various routes or whatever. And you'll stop mm. getting junk mail. So it's a really simple, practical step that you can take to stop junk mail getting put through your door. Which is all very well, but I was kind of looking forward to you making juices from your own piss or something. So how far did you go with this? So I used my food scraps, right, to dye an item of clothing to give it a new lease of life. Wow. I wouldn't, I mean, I, I've met people in the street who smell of food scraps and I wouldn't describe them as having a lease of life. I've got a, a few old Top Man t-shirts that I was ready to throw into the bin. So I thought, well, hang on, I'm going to take one of those. I'm going to dye it. So I got some um, broad bean casings, some old banana peel. Hold some, on, hold on. You got what? some broad bean casings. You didn't buy oh, yeah, them specially yeah, yeah. to make the dye. No, 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 no. no. I, I, I'd eaten the broad Had beans. A delicious dinner of broad beans. What did you What did you eat the broad beans in? I'm just curious. Uh, they we had them with mint and pine nuts. My neighbour grew those broad beans and gave them to me. All right. Okay, so really zero waste. And I used some sweet potatoes. You don't need sweet potato. It's just it's quite vibrant. So what you do is you get some distilled vinegar. Right. Um, you put the the food scraps into a into a nice like pattern on your on your T-shirt that you think will look attractive. <laughs> what could look more attractive than a load of food scraps on a clothing garment? You roll it up, you tie it up and then you put it in the vinegar. And the vinegar apparently helps release a more vibrant dye. And then you steam it for two hours. But what do you mean steam it? The, the T-shirt in, yeah, like in a steamer, steam like you'd steam peas. Over a saucepan, yeah. With sweet potato and vinegar. Think of a t-shirt sausage with lots of food scraps inside yeah. it. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then it's being heated. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, look, I'm, this is for the environment. Yeah, okay, this yeah is sure. good. <laughs> and, and here, I, I have the final result, Ollie Man. I mean, from here, it just looks like a plain t-shirt, I'm afraid. It just looks like a load of blotches. It's interesting because it is just a load of blotches. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I can I couldn't tell whether that was our internet signal being interrupted or what you'd actually made. The the result of this has highlighted to me why some of these crafty reusing ideas are so flawed. The end result is absolutely horrific and I'm not gonna wear it. it it's now just a stained T shirt. Yeah, which exactly I, can't even go to a charity shop. Like you'd you'd basically use that for painting the house, wouldn't you? That's it. I can use it I can use it, yeah, as a duster. Uh, I mean I have found another one where you can turn it into a you can turn it into a bag. I found that, but I might turn it into a bag, but then I I got a stained bag. So I've basic all I've done, all I've achieved with trying to sort of reuse some of my stuff is a stained T shirt. And that's the moral of the story. Don't bother recycling. <laughs> <laughs> because it's no, aesthetically I, unattractive. Is that what we're I really think, saying in 2021? No. The thing I, I suppose I've taken from this is that it absolutely has made me just way more aware of how much waste I produce or buy, more importantly. Like the amount yeah. of waste that I bring into the house. And there is there is things that can be done, but it needs to happen on a much, much larger scale and it needs to happen sort of on a government level, basically, to, to help well, us Well, or on a supermarket those. level. I mean, they've been talking for years, haven't they, about making kind of giant refill aisles at the supermarket. So you just go in with your own packaging and then fill up on what you need in terms of pulses and rice and nuts and stuff like that. That's the way to do it, isn't it? If everyone went in with their own container... And, you know, I know yes. that every town has its own, like, eco shop like that. But it's probably quite expensive. You probably have to have a conversation about career with the person who's serving you. 
you know, <laughs> most people still want to go to Sainsbury's or Tesco and do their shopping. And there are some companies, there's some apps that are trying to do something about it, especially within food waste. There's a there's a, a great app. It, well, the premise of the app is great called Too Good To Go, right? Which is basically a platform where shops, so supermarkets can do this as well. Pret-a-Manger actually signed up. Morrison's are signed up. At the end of a day, they'll list stuff that they're selling really, really cheap. Um, mm. Morrison's have a thing called a magic bag. You don't know what you're going to get in it. <laughs> it's a surprise. Uh-huh. Um, but all the stuff's going off and it would otherwise be thrown out. But you're getting ch- cheaper produce and you're and the idea is, is that you're stopping that food from getting wasted in the first place. And there's only 13,000 people signed up in the UK to this app. And when I tried to get some stuff using the app, they're almost always gone. You know, we're talking about the amount of waste we produce and, and trying to live zero waste so we don't throw stuff away. But actually, that stuff being produced in the first place is has an environmental impact and if it's not necessary then why make it in the first place why have it you know it shouldn't exist so please we don't have to segue straight into our plug for pubic ball trimmers (laughs) 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 right time to uh, delve into our mailbag and set you your challenge for next month would you like to know what it is ollie (laughs) mailbag yes it is from lucy in leeds who says, uh, I heard your episode last month and think you missed an opportunity to give Ollie a related challenge. Why don't you send him off to learn how to keyword spam the internet? I listened to the episode last month. I vaguely know what you're talking about. So what it was, was I'd found this guy who'd done a song about me on the internet. And then Stuart Goldsmith, who was one of the people that was on the show last month, told me that that's called keyword spamming. They were using my name as a keyword and his, weirdly, to attract listens to their album on Spotify, which existed purely to make money, not for any artistic reason. So Lucy in Leeds is essentially saying to you, Ollie Pitt, why don't you make a bullshit album on Spotify (laughs) and see if you can make some money out of keyword spamming? Okay, I'd have to pick someone who's a bit more well-known to make any kind of money, though. Yeah, you'd think if you wrote a song about Michael Jackson, that would get more clicks than writing a song about Ollie Mann, wouldn't you? But there must be some method in the madness. Uh, What Stuart Goldsmith seemed to be saying last time is that keyword spamming is about finding some strange niche areas where you can be the number one result. I think it's like, because I'm a podcaster, if you're searching for podcasts on Spotify, you're going to click on that song, you're more likely to click on that song than if you're searching for Michael Jackson where there's hundreds of songs. I see. Yeah, that does make sense because you're not really going to compete against the actual Michael Jackson, are right. you? Whereas with Ollie Mann, potentially yes. Can I just keyword spam you again? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I quite like the fact that it's my website and my Wikipedia and my podcast that come up when you search my <laughs> name, but sure, just shit all over it if you want to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I suppose the truth is my name is not going to be the most valuable keyword term. Naga Manchetti. I bet she's a good one. Why do you say that? Because she trends a lot on social media. I think she'd be really good. As usual, I suppose we should set the the mandatory budget of £50 from the uh, massive sacks of money that we have funding this enterprise. (laughs) Don't worry, you'll get my itemised receipts. How much can you destroy my internet profile with £50 of my own money? That's your challenge, (laughs) Jolly. Good. Challenge accepted. In the meantime, we should thank our sponsors for the zeitgeist, manscaped.com. The people behind the Lawmer 3.0, which, by the way, I have still got in my toolbox. I mean, it's come out of my toolbox and I've used it to, you know, trim my gonads. And your box. 
Uh, it is the pubic ball trimmer that is trusted by over two million men worldwide. I must say, in the summer as well, it is a great time to be thankful for the services of Manscaped. It's a lot less clammy down there these days. I've noticed the difference. Well, that's thanks to its uh, 7,000 RPM motor, Ollie, to chew through your colossal thick weeds but if you get the performance package 3.0 you get the weed whacker which is the ear and nose trimmer with a 9000 rpm motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system Uh, there is the crop preserver ball deodorant and the crop reviver toner and you get two free gifts in that package as well and you can use manscaped's incredible products and get 20 percent off and free shipping when you use the code man at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping with the code man m-a-n-n at manscaped.com achieve pubic glory this year with manscaped ollie i look forward to seeing you next month you too man take care Coming up next, you'll be meeting Manfan Antonia to tell us about her narcolepsy journey. But first, it is time for our record of the month. It's the new one from Drugstore Romeos. It's called Secret Plan. Miss out now. know what happened on this day in history now there's a podcast to help you find out it's called the retrospectors 10 minutes of fascinating facts 24 people are killed annually by flying champagne corks (laughs) delivered to you every weekday the congo was once home to its own wild west themed gangs from now until the end of time the statue of liberty was shipped in 214 boxes the retrospectors follow us now on acast apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Now, as you know, we are always very keen to hear your stories on this show. It's one of the things I'm really proud of, that uh, if you think you have a story to share, you write in and tell us, and very often those are the stories that make it to air, stories you don't often hear anywhere else. And a few months ago, uh, well, March, actually, I have warned you before, it takes us a while to sort through the inbox, Um, manfan Antonia Gentile wrote in, I recognise that name immediately because she's been following me since the early days of Answer Me This. I've never met her. I just knew the name from Twitter and stuff. And she told me something that I never knew about her. She said, Hi Ollie, I live with type 1 narcolepsy, a rare and frequently misunderstood condition which causes me to fall asleep wherever I am or whatever I'm doing. Narcoleptics are frequently misrepresented in mainstream media as lazy or as a joke, but the condition is actually incredibly isolating and debilitating. Many people with narcolepsy really fear talking to the media, but I believe that your podcast could do the topic justice. Uh, Well, let's hope so, because we invited Antonia to a Zoom call, and I could see sitting behind her on the sofa her partner, Paul, which I think is the first time I've ever interviewed anyone with their partner sitting behind them in shot. So I started by asking Antonia why she needed him there. Yeah, so Paul is here because um, my condition's very unpredictable. Any of my symptoms will happen at any given time. I can fall asleep at any given time. 
or I could have a cataplexy attack at any given time, which is where I lose all muscle tone. And uh, essentially, my body's paralyzed for a few minutes, but my mind still works. So I can still hear. Um, in fact, I can hear everything everyone's saying. So if anyone says anything insulting, I can hear it. But I can't see and I can't, um, basically can't use any of my limbs. It's really hard to pinpoint exactly when my narcolepsy started because it's one of those illnesses that really creeps under the surface. And there are certain symptoms that kind of you think, okay, that's not normal. But a lot of the symptoms are things like excessive daytime sleepiness, which people um, mistake for fatigue. People are just associated with those things with working too hard. And all the way through my 20s, that's basically what I did. I'd fall asleep, like, you know, at the end of the day, watching TV. Like, loads of people do that when they're working hard. You don't think anything different. But when I moved to London in 2015, um, I started falling asleep at really unusual times, just like during concerts at the pub. What was your job? I was a music teacher, a primary school music teacher. During PPA time, which is like a bit of time that teachers have to plan the work for the week ahead, it's difficult to say whether I knew I fell asleep because sometimes it's genuinely difficult to know whether you've kind of like gone, I need to put my head on the table because I am so drowsy or whether I've just fallen asleep by accident. And I woke up first down on my keyboard. <laughs> and when you woke up, had you got any idea of how long you'd been asleep for? Not entirely. I, it was probably an hour. Was there an element where you thought, oh, that's kind of funny. I'm so tired I fell asleep at work. I honestly didn't think anything about it. I was like, I am just working too hard because... A lot of teachers do. Um, I I was always falling asleep, like, and you know, avoiding going out at the weekends because I just need to like stay at home and nap on a Saturday night and stuff like that. I just assumed I'm just tired. I'm just I'm I'm just working too hard. I until it started happening over and over again, then I started to re- realize, okay, there's a problem here. So, like in the staff room, I was once talking to my colleagues. Um, they were either side of me, I was having a conversation, it was like lunchtime, fell asleep, woke up and they're gone. <laughs> to begin with, it only really happens at sedentary times. So like if I'm at the computer doing work, if I'm reading a book, if I'm sat after lunch, you know, like if you have quite a heavy meal or a carb heavy meal, like most people will like feel quite drowsy and sleepy after having a bowl of pasta, for example. Um, but after lunch, that's like a time where I would normally fall asleep in the staff room because having a, a big lunch or whatever would caused me to feel quite sleepy when I was in front of my class it's like a performance um I've never ever fallen asleep on stage I've never had a cataplexy stack on stage either so you're kind of like always on switched on so you know and then it's after that you kind of realize Ugh. and I would always sleep on the floor in my classroom for commuting home because I would just be so exhausted by the time the class went out the door I was like now I can crash you would always sleep on the floor of your classroom before commuting home. Yeah. And you'd normalise that. Yeah. Because that's not a nap on the bus, is it? That is yeah. a weird place to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> the cleaner come in and out going, what's going on? <laughs> Seriously, the cleaner would like open the door. I'd be like, she's sleeping. I can't clean the classroom. Like, shut the door and then come back later. So what were the events that led up to you seeking a diagnosis then? I was just ignoring the falling asleep, feeling tired and stuff. It was actually the cataplexy symptoms that made me think this is not normal. So cataplexy is the sudden loss of muscle tone um, when you experience extreme emotions. So for example, uh, laughter, surprise, anything. Um, Any emotion, extreme emotion, sudden emotion can cause a collapse. Mine started off as like blurred eyesight and 
my knees would give way a little bit and then I'd be fine after a couple of seconds. And then it progressed over time to a major cataplexy attack, which is where you actually fully collapse to the floor. So you lose muscle tone in every single muscle in your body. The first time I had cataplexy, I was on playground duty and a child was doing something they shouldn't be doing. I think they were swinging on the bike racks and I went over to them, like, it was just really dangerous. So I was like, don't do that. Please don't, you know, like stop. And I tried to like go to them really quickly and my knees wouldn't work. My knees just were like really like weak. And I was like thinking, hang on a sec, this is really weird. Like why are my knees not working? And because it was kind of playground duty and there's a lot of kids around you, you just have to kind of put it out of your mind and carry on. It was until those things started to happen. And a lot of the times it was like shock or surprise or like having to react quickly that caused these situations to happen. And occasionally like to begin with, I would say like they happened every few weeks and I was like, I'm just stressed, just anxious. And I remember teaching a reception class for children and they're making me laugh and actually physically having to hold onto the desk because I could barely see, but they didn't notice. Uh, kids, are, I think if it had been obviously a massive attack, kids would have noticed, but yeah. the minor cataplexy, I got very, very good at hiding it. Well, also to children, just all grown ups are weird, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what were you saying in your own mind about this then? Like you must have, you've noticed, you've joined the dots. You've been like, okay, I start losing my sight when I laugh. That's not normal. So then what? Are you going home? Are you typing it into Google? My first cataplexy attack was in February 2019. I didn't Google it until 2020. And I didn't speak to a doctor until December 2019. I was just so focused on work. I was taking like, extra responsibilities. I was writing productions. I was writing music. I was doing... like taking on everything and everything during the summer holidays I was doing opera productions I was still performing on stage I was just I was so busy I didn't have time to stop and think what's happening until it started happening like every week and that's when I met my partner Paul the first time we met at a a Gilbert and Sullivan marathon (laughs) where we sang (laughs) It's so weird. We sang every single Gilbert and Sullivan opera back to back. It took about 36 hours. That doesn't sound like a good event for anyone with narcolepsy. So the first few months I knew Paul, um, he'd make me laugh. If we were walking somewhere, I'd often stop and he'd be like, okay, like, why are you stop walking? I was like, nothing, I'm fine. And I like stopped walking until my knees kind of like felt okay. For just a couple of seconds and then we continue walking again. We went on holiday to Portugal and I fell asleep in a restaurant face down on the table. In the middle of dinner? In the middle of dinner. He was eating his dinner. And um, it was during half term. So, you know, he was like, why are you really tired? Like, we're, not, we're on holiday, mm. we're relaxed. And it's just like, ah, oh, just, you know, just really tired from last week still, you know, and taking the time holiday to recover and stuff. And he was the first person who said to me, this is not normal. You need to get this looked at. When you're saying the words to your partner, oh, yeah, everything's fine. You must have known, really, that wasn't the case. I think, to be honest, like, I was just so embarrassed that I'd let myself get so unwell, like, having to tell him what was going on, that I just spent so long just trying to cover it up. So Paul made me go to the doctor. At the time, we kind of thought it might just be something really easy to, to fix, because, like, like uh, low iron or low vitamin D, which is actually what the doctor, the route the doctor went down in the first instance. So my first GP trip, my GP was basically like, 
I don't think there's anything too wrong here. You, you know, you're a teacher, you've worked too hard, you should have come a bit sooner, but, um, you know, it's probably just that you're low in vitamin D, you're low in iron, so let's do some blood tests to see what's wrong. Um, and it came back with low vitamin D and low iron, and I started taking the supplements and went back to work. And then at the end of my first week back at school, I couldn't walk home. I couldn't physically walk the road. I was actually physically holding onto the railings on the road because I couldn't walk home. I remember getting home, ringing Paul, because we were going to go to the theatre for my birthday, because it's tears before my birthday. And he was like, have a nap, and then we'll see how you feel. And I remember we went to the theatre, and I fell asleep, but it was like, you know, that you probably had this, everyone probably has these kind of sleeps occasionally, like when you're jet lagged, Mm. and you fall asleep for like a second, like, you know, like, just drop off for a second, and or like, and you're like, oh, I dropped off there for a second. I started doing that all the way through this production. that we were watching and Paul noticed my head like dropping a lot and he was like that's not normal and it, that's the first time that those kind of instances started mm. happening but we called those micro sleeps um and I was like well that's a new symptom that's weird I'm taking the supplements I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing um and then over that course of that weekend I got so physically weak that I couldn't even get up the stairs by myself wow okay so then you did go to the fucking doctor Again. Again. And what did they yeah. say? And I, they went, just keep taking the supplements. Iron can take a while to work. Just just keep taking it. Um, take some time off work. So I took some time off work. I remember ringing work on the Monday. I've been off fr- on Friday. I've been off all weekend. And I rang work on the Monday. Like, I've been to the doctors again. And, um, like, I'm still feeling pretty weak. But they're confident, like, I'll be all right if I keep taking the supplements. And then that day, I had my first full cataplexy attack. What happened? Um... I walked down the stairs, four flights of stairs, because I was living at the top of a, a quite a high, uh, like like a townhouse. And I was living with my friend and his mom at the time. And I walked down all these stairs and I opened the door to say hello, like kind of like happy to see my friend's mom. And I looked at her and I was on the floor the next minute. Like I lost all my muscle tone. I remember my knees buckling first followed by sort of my torso, my arms, losing the muscle tone, and finally my head. So my head was like drooping down, my chin was on my chest, bobbing up and down, my head, I couldn't couldn't control anything for a good half a minute, couldn't see. All I could hear was my friend's mom panicking. She was like, are you okay, what's happening? Because I couldn't respond, because I can't use my mouth, I can't use my jaw muscles, I can't physically speak. Can you move at all? No. So you're like, no. frozen but your brain's completely active and aware of what's happening yeah so that was incredibly frightening because if you fainted like you wouldn't be necessarily aware of what's going on yeah. but I was aware and I was aware that she was panicking and I was aware that I couldn't move and I was like when am I going to be able to move again and it felt like forever it felt like a really really long time and eventually my muscle tone came back and I was fine and I sat up and she helped me she kind of grabbed onto my hands and helped me up and you know, she was kind of like, that was weird. Are you okay? Do you want me to call the ambulance? What do you want me to do? And I was like, I just want to sit down for a second. And I sat down at the um, at the, the table and she was just looking at me like, that's not normal. What happened to you is just not. Because she didn't, she knew I'd been really unwell. And she was just like, I think you should call NHS 111. Um, so they did like a cranial nerve examination where they like, you ask you to like, you know, follow their finger and like check your reflexes and all those kind of sort of things. And everything was normal. And she just sat there and looked at me, this doctor, and she was just like, 
I don't really know what's going on. I think we need to check that you don't have a brain tumour. So when did you first hear the word narcolepsy? When I googled it. So it wasn't a brain tumour, so that presumably was good news, although you're still in the, what have I got? And then, so what did you Google? I Googled, why do I collapse when I laugh? And first thing that came up was cataplexy. And there was a link to the Narcolepsy UK website. I had only heard of narcolepsy through the film Moulin Rouge. You know, he goes stiff as a board whenever he has a cataplexy attack or a... Uh, a sleep attack, which is not what happened. So obviously, like, I didn't put two and two together in that way. What did you find out? So I, I actually emailed the narcolepsy charity. And within three hours, I had a lovely email back from Nicola. She's one of the people who runs the charity. And she was basically like the first person I'd spoken to who basically understood what I was saying. You know, like, when you don't know what's wrong with you and you're really worried about, you know, like, it could be something really serious... Obviously, narcolepsy is serious, but you think it's with life-threatening. You do mm. worry, and, you, and it raises your anxiety levels. But for someone to tell you they think they know what's wrong with you after months of just being so unsure, it just was a massive relief. Because it's not just your career that was then affected. It's also your hobbies. I mean, I can see just from your social media profile that things that you used to do include performing, as you mentioned earlier, which you're now loath to do, and cooking, which you can't do unsupervised anymore. No. Nope. <laughs> Very dangerous. I can't drive. I've had my license taken off me when I was diagnosed. You kind of I surrendered it. I can't have a bath unsupervised because the hot water sends me to sleep. Um, I can't read a book. I haven't read a book in a long time. I love reading as well. Love reading so much. So audiobooks and podcasts are like the next best thing. So really, if you were to just pick up a book now and concentrate, I mean, how long would it be before it was likely you might fall asleep? It depends if, you know, like, because now I've made sure I've rested for this interview. I've had a lot of coffee, probably 20 minutes. Right. But sometimes it can be literally like two pages. I remember taking a book with me to my sleep study because you have a lot of time to wait around. And I remember literally reading two pages of a book and being like, oh God, I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> so, a sleep study, what's that? Mm-hmm. They ask you to sleep from about 11 o'clock to about 6 30 ish so that you have a good period to sleep in. They check to see how quickly you fall asleep. If you're having REM sleep, because people with narcolepsy have a lot of REM sleep. They dream dream very vividly. They found from my sleep study that I was waking up on average 22 times an hour. Hmm. So that's from like full awakenings to like minor arousals where you might be like, you know, in the middle of the night, you might like not really realize you're waking up. Yeah, that sounds like a lot though. That was basically what was causing my narcolepsy. So sleep fragmentation and lack of good quality nighttime sleep is what makes you fall asleep during the day. So there you were thinking that you were prone to falling asleep during the day, but actually it's that you're not sleeping properly at night. So yeah. that there is a pathway to, I don't want to use the word cure because it's not curable, is it? But there's a pathway <laughs> to reduce the attacks during the day. How do you make yourself sleep better at night? What do you do? Is it blackout so, blinds and you know aromatherapy? What's the deal? <laughs> so they they ask you to improve your sleep hygiene which is basically everything that can help you sleep better at night and it's not just like don't take electronics into bedroom it's not just black up blinds it's everything like your whole bedtime routine like going to bed at the same time every night getting up at the same time every day the thing is my brain lacks a, a chemical which keeps me awake so i have no sleep regulator so essentially going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time every day tries to train your body into kind of having a routine that is lacking. And it's things like making sure the, 
the room's at a good temperature. It's completely dark. I can't sleep with any little lights on. You know, like lights from like the, um, like if you've got like something that plugs in and you're charging it, it's got like a little blue light on them. I have to cover everything up. Most nights I dream so vividly, I barely feel like I've slept. I have very, very bad nightmares. I, I say that Nakhilis is really cruel because it kind of knows what to bring out in order to frighten you and upset you. <laughs> and then a lot of the hallucinations come out of those nightmares. So I've, I have genuinely thought people have been intruding in the house. Um, I think I've, I've woken up and thought I've seen someone trying to get into the to, to the room. A lot of the time, I don't see things. Like I feel things or hear things that aren't there. So a lot of the time, I've woken up from daytime naps because they happen to me during the day as well. And I think I've heard my parents' voices. And I think I'm at home in my, my family home. And I'm not. <laughs> and I wake up like, what? My parents aren't here. That's really weird. But... I've definitely heard their voices, like clear as crystal. And you've been very open to all of my questions. You've talked about all the slightly freakish things about narcolepsy that people are interested in, you know, falling asleep in a theatre, that you might fall asleep behind the wheel and all that stuff. In real life, are you comfortable with those questions? I've had to make myself comfortable talking about it. It's difficult for me to get out and socialise with new people because I have to say to them, look, I have this condition, falling asleep, I might fall asleep. It's nothing personal. You're not being boring. It's just me. But people do treat me differently because of my narcolepsy. You know, I've had people apologize for making me have a cataplexy attack because they've said something funny. I'm like, if you've said something funny that's made me have cataplexy, it's probably because it was hilarious. So you should be flattered. Um, Like, I'm not offended. Like, it's fine. It's a normal thing. And I don't want people to treat me differently because I have cataplexy. Um, But I can understand why they do. Like, seeing someone have a cataplexy attack because you've said something funny could make them feel bad. Like, it's, it, looks, it looks frightening. It, look, it doesn't look normal. I'm very, very lucky. My friends, they just treat me completely normally. They're amazing. You've got a blog as well where you've written about how members of the public have disputed whether you should sit in a disabled seat on a train. Can you just be clear about that? Because, of course, there are invisible disabilities, and I understand that. But in your case, I'm not sure, even after speaking to you for an hour, that I I really understand why you would be sitting in a disabled seat on a train. Why? One of the symptoms of narcolepsy that makes you fall asleep is called excessive daytime sleepiness. And that's not just a sleep attack. It's not just falling asleep. It can make you physically so drowsy that you cannot stand up. I have had attacks of uh, EDS in shop, for example, and I've had to sit down on the floor and sleep for 20 minutes. And there's nothing I can do. I need to. Sit, I, I have to sit down, put, get myself to a safe space because if not, I'll be asleep on the floor. So if I don't sit in that seat on the tube, I'll be asleep on the floor in the middle of the tube. So it's, it's the case where that's the only seat available that you've sat in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have vacated seats for people that I think, gosh, like I saw a pregnant lady who's obviously struggling. Nobody else was giving up a seat. And I was just like, like, I'm drowsy, but nobody else is giving up a seat. She looks like she needs a seat more than me. But I've still had horrific horrific abuse on the tube um I was once on the tube um it was Piccadilly line and I when I got on the Piccadilly line it was empty (laughs) so and I and um I sat in a disabled seat I think it's because I was so drowsy and I needed something to rest my head on it's got they've got you know the glass glass inside and glass so I was resting my head against the glass and when I came round luckily time to get off the tube there was a woman who stood in front of me and in front of the whole carriage said, you are, you are disgusting. You're a disgusting human being. Your city's sleeping in a disabled seat. There's a child there who's been stood up this whole entire way who could do with that seat. You're a disgusting human being in front of the whole tube. And I just, I was so gobsmacked that I didn't know what to say. So gobsmacked that I couldn't even say I have narcolepsy or anything. I was just so upset and so gobsmacked. Everyone, she was looking at me and I was just like, 
I was so shocked that I, was, I just didn't know what to do. And that was quite early on. And I think now I would actually stand up and say, look, I've got narcolepsy, but even that interaction could cause a cataplexy mm. attack. So it's really hard for me sometimes to actually say, you know, you're being unreasonable or whatever. Um, I mean, recently on a bus, a bus driver told me that I had to sit down because I was a young and healthy person. Mm. And I actually had to say in front of the whole bus, well, actually, I have a disability and I had my narcolepsy card with me. It's like a little card which basically explains my symptoms. But I had to announce it to the whole bus because that bus driver didn't consider that I might have an invisible mm. disability. And they're supposed to be, you know, part of a company who are doing a big, like, big campaign about invisible disabilities at the moment. But if the if the doctors don't know, <laughs> it seems almost ridiculous to think that the bus driver would, doesn't it? I mean... It's about language. So you don't kind of say to someone, you're a young and healthy person, you should be going upstairs to sit down because there's a seat upstairs. He should have said, are you able to sit down? Mm. Even that, just, just, just you know, asking someone because he doesn't know. Yes, I get it. How is this, how is this supposed to tell? Because he actually said to me, how am I supposed to know you have an invisible disability? That's mm. um, because yeah, don't presume, no. ask first. Exactly. You know, it's weird because you wrote to the show because you wanted to spread awareness about narcolepsy and to provide an account of with a bit more detail than people understand but what's been interesting listening to you talk is you're right of course that people don't know much about narcolepsy but actually just the vocabulary of sleep that you're now dropping into the conversation because you're so used to talking about it you know hallucinations sleep hygiene lucidity these are not conversations that anyone's having you know I don't ask anyone about what their sleep's like Unless they're a new parent or there's a reason to ask that question that goes beyond the usual, how's your sleep? And I wonder whether, considering we all do it for at least a third of our lives, it's not just a, a conversation about narcolepsy that needs to happen, but actually there maybe needs to be more conversation about sleep. Absolutely. And actually, many people will have problems with their sleep during their lifetime, whether it's insomnia or stress. Lots of people have problems with their sleep that they just kind of ignore. And actually, there are things you can do to help yourself. And kind of normalizing sleep problems isn't good. It's not normal to not be able to sleep at night. It's You have to confront it and you have to look into why you're not sleeping well. Um, it's, and no one should ever feel like they should have to put up with sleeping badly as well. Like there are things that you can do. Antonia Gentile. Uh, and if you're wondering what those things are that you can do, uh, Antonia recommended an app called Sleepio, uh, which is a clinically evidenced sleep improvement program which uses CBT techniques to help you improve poor sleep. Uh, I've put a link to that on our website. And also, she said, if you think you have narcolepsy, then do reach out to Narcolepsy UK. Unbelievably, it takes on average between five and ten years for people to get a narcolepsy diagnosis. But with the help of the charity, they can get in touch with your GP and help you get the support that you need a bit quicker. Uh, so I put a link to them on our website as well, which is also where you need to go if you have a story that you would like to share on a future edition of the show uh, or any feedback on Antonia's story or anything you've heard in this episode. Uh, right, up next, should you stop having anal sex if your partner finds it unsatisfying? It can only be Alex Fox with The Foxhole after this. All right, let's talk about the birds and the bees, and also fucking. It's the foxhole with Alex Fox. It's the birds, the bees, and sometimes the beads as well of the anal variety. <laughs> what have you been up to this month? 
This month, I've been trying to change the conversation about fertilization. Now, when we study this in biology at school, often it's presented one of two ways. We're either told that sperm are these incredible Olympians that are racing towards the egg, and meanwhile, the egg itself, the ovum is kind of passive. It's just, just sat sitting there. there, isn't it? Just chilling. Or otherwise, it's it's framed as a bit of a battle where the woman's body is this quite hostile environment full of acids and challenges, and it's a it's a real diffi- difficult, literally uphill struggle for these poor sperm. But okay. both of the ways that those stories are told make the sperm the heroes and the woman's body or the, the birth birth person's body either the zero, you know, it's just sat there or, or actively quite nasty to the sperm. In fact, the reality is quite different. It's much more of a collaborative process. Um, It is true that there are acids. It's quite an acidic environment within the lower part of the reproductive tract. But that is, there are good reasons for that. It's to help weed out the, uh, the more struggling, straggling sperm, if you will. But once sperm actually reach the cervix, the female body really helps them in many ways. For a start, the cervix um, is shown to contract, to whoosh sperm and propel them at a faster rate than they could ever swim. The ovum itself sends out chemical signals that act as a bit of like a GPS beacon to try and guide those sperm to the right fallopian tube. I wish you'd been my biology teacher, Alex. This is a lot more interesting than what we did at school. But when you say you're trying to change the conversation, I mean, what do you mean? I'm trying to boost the work of a number of scientists and biology teachers who are actually trying to get biology books revised so that in Ah. the future, what young people learn in schools is less patriarchal, less frankly misogynist. Yeah, ironically could help a lot of men as well, couldn't it? Because part of the feeling of shame that your sperm aren't strong enough is because that's exactly how the books are written isn't it you've got millions of them they're all over the place they just need to find their way yeah if you believe that your sperm are poor olympians or that they're perfect on a particular terrain but the one that they're entering is you know they're playing they're playing on grass wow this is an extended metaphor um no i'm enjoying the topicality of it though the olympics (laughs) that's great um right time for our listener question of sex brought to you by the handy.com the sex toy that revolutionizes masturbation which at up to 10 strokes per second is the most powerful penis pleasuring device on the market right now. And this month's question comes from an anonymous man fan who says, I am a young cis man in a long-term relationship and my wife was my first sexual partner. We have always had a very, very satisfying sex life. So far, so good. A few times per year, he says, we engage in anal sex and we are both aware that it's more my kink than hers. Actually, it is my biggest kink slash fantasy, and when I pleasure myself alone, it's what I think of most times. Again, may I say, I think it's quite sweet that he is thinking about his wife's anus when he's wanking. (laughs) Well, he says he's thinking about anal. He doesn't specifically say his wife's anus, but yeah. I suppose. As far as bum fun goes, this sounds quite sugary sweet to this point. Yeah, I'm thinking like if Mr Brady from the Brady Bunch was doing his wife up the bum, it would sound like this. (laughs) Um, Recently, after a session of penetrative anal sex, he continues, she admitted something that baffled me. She said that she only does it for me because she knows I like it and that she derives no particular pleasure from it. I feel extremely foolish because I hadn't perceived this. The only times we engaged in anal, it seemed to me like we were both feeling it and getting all warmed up about it. 
But now I feel like she wasn't consenting all that time and didn't dare tell me. I feel a lot of guilt and like I've been unknowingly abusive. At the same time, I'm frustrated she didn't tell me this earlier since I thought she would trust me enough to tell me. It's all very confusing. As a result, I posited to myself that we will not be having anal sex anymore. I have no intention of putting my wife through anything she doesn't enjoy too. Are there somehow ways of satisfying this fantasy in a way that's healthy for us as a couple? Anal, anal, the dream is over. Or is it? It turns out that his partner uh, having her bottom penetrated is actually nearer the bottom of her list of desires. That is most definitely a bummer on every level, but... Does that make it, in his words, non-consensual? And should he be feeling guilty for, again, as he phrases it, being unknowingly abusive? I mean, my reaction reading to it is, like, your wife agreeing to do something that she knows you find pleasurable, or more pleasurable than her, or even not pleasurable for her at all, is in itself perhaps a generous thing to do. It doesn't have to be non-consensual. She's consenting to pleasure you. I would really like to know the context of the conversation in which this came up because our our writer here frames this as being a kink for him, a fetish. And sometimes when somebody feels that way about a particular sex act, they want really full-on enthusiasm from the person that they're playing with, partly because they might need some reassurance that what they're doing is actually okay. If you have a sense of guilt or uh, a little bit of mixed feelings about the fact that you're drawn towards a particular fetish, um, then you might want extra heaps of enthusiasm from your partner to make you feel confident about indulging in that. So I wonder if it was the kind of conversation where he was going, oh, you love this, don't you? Oh, this this is just the perfect thing for you and me, isn't it? Isn't this bomb sex a dream? And then she'd finally turn around and gone, well, actually, um, letting you take a dip in Willy Wonka's Chocolatey River really isn't something I umpa lumpa want to doopity do that much. Um, so I'd like to hear more about how this revelation came out. Um, the impression I get, though, is that this isn't something that is actively traumatising or upsetting her I just don't think that she is receiving a huge amount of physical pleasure from it. Um, now, I've referred to the legendary shaggy aunt Dan Savage before on the show, and he coined the phrase GGG uh, to mean good, giving and game. Um, just to reiterate what those three categories mean, it's about being a good lover. It's about putting the work in to understand how to do certain sex acts, to be good at them. It's about being giving, making sure that you're giving equal time and pleasure to your partner and receiving the same. And then that third one, the key one is game. It's about being up for anything within reason without pushing ah. your boundaries too far. Nothing to do with venison steak then? Well, it depends what your fetish is. But yeah, I think there's a number of aspects about this scenario that might prompt this woman to try and be even more game than usual. For a start, she's his first sexual partner. So I think she's trying to give him the most exciting, varied, sensual experience that she can within the confines of what is presumably a monogamous relationship. So she's trying to be up for things so that he has a full life experience. Secondly, she might have limited experience of anal herself. So the reason that she's not 
fessed up, if you will, before might be that it's taken her a few goes to work out whether she really doesn't like this or not. She might have been unsure the first time about whether it felt not so great because she hadn't learned what to do with her body yet. So it might just genuinely have taken her a while to draw this conclusion that she's now shared. Uh, And thirdly, it's the fact that she really knows that he is into it. Now, Ollie, when we record, obviously I always prepare and obviously we do do some editing, but largely our conversations are just that. I'd like to think I don't make you do anything you don't want to do just for my pleasure. <laughs> no, you don't. But it's <laughs> it's a it's a casual, to some degree, spontaneous conversation between friends. Right. And so sometimes I do worry that because I'm speaking casually and conversationally about things, I might slightly phrase something wrongly that's really important. And when we're talking about consent and the nuances of consent, this is an area that I I can feel in the pit of my stomach that I'm becoming nervous about. But I think it's really important to recognise that, yes, The conversation around consent currently often focuses on enthusiasm and the idea that everybody must not just be saying yes because they feel coerced into something, but yes because they really want to do it. I think breaking that down a bit further, sometimes we say yes because on balance, the thrill of knowing our partner is turned on by something supersedes a sex act perhaps feeling slightly physically uncomfortable. To to give an example I think a lot of people will be able to relate to, lots of women and men don't actually love the sensation of choking and coughing during a blowjob, but they know it makes their partner feel really turned on because it, it feels like the experience is a bit more extreme. And so on balance, they do consent to doing that on their own terms when they want to because that feeling of pleasing their partner and that rush that they get makes it worthwhile. Also, in a relationship, in a marriage, it seems to me like so long as there is an equivalent thing that she likes to do, I'm not saying that they should try and find things that he deliberately finds unpleasurable, but, you know, that he is prepared to do despite something that it wouldn't necessarily be something he'd choose. So long as there is an equivalence there and they're both participating in things occasionally. He's only talking about a couple of times a year here, isn't he, he said occasionally yeah. that they don't personally enjoy i don't really see there's an issue there so long as they're both being ggg good giving and game and that, that, that that's equal then that sounds like a pretty a plus relationship between two human beings it's very rare for two people to be absolutely on the same page about every aspect of sex all of the time okay but let's take them at face value as in we don't know what the whole conversation was he seems to have concluded that anal is now off the menu in his marriage and he's asking What can I do about that? Well, first of all, he is going to need to talk to his wife about this to make sure that the conclusions he's drawn in his head are actually true to life. The fact that he says he's posited to himself that he won't be having anal suggests that this chit-chat has been going on just between his two ears. (laughs) (laughs) He needs to sit sit down with his wife talk about this in a chilled out context not straight before or straight after sex I'd be very wary about suggesting that she has lied or misled or that this is this is a trust issue because I really don't think it is and I think turning into something that stern and that that serious and accusatory is completely unnecessary and unlikely to lead to a good conclusion so they're going to need to talk but perhaps before they have this this chat it'd be really good for him to reflect on exactly what 
it is about anal that he likes um, because there are other things that he might be able to explore that may be more palatable to his wife that will fulfill what he gets from anal without her actually having to do that for example if it's the taboo aspect of anal that really turns him on there are other taboo things like him being pegged for example that they might want to explore or if it's the feeling of tightness they might want to look into tight toys or something like uh, a masturbatory sleeve that um that the apes an anal passage if you will if it's the fact that he's being dominant that he's he feels a bit more in charge during anal sex then they might want to look into um something like spanking if she's up for that i would also suggest that on his in his private time when he's masturbating he broadens the porn and erotica that he's looking at and invites himself to discover other things that titillate him because at the moment he really is it does sound like he's fixating quite a lot on this particular fetish of yeah. bum fun in check his out another time. aisle in the supermarket exactly Go see those exactly. massive bags of basmati rice for example <laughs> hope that helps anonymous man uh keep us posted before we go a big thanks or should that be big wanks to our sponsor thehandy.com one aspect of this masturbation device that really makes it stand out from others on the market is the fact that the manufacturers have provided an open api what that essentially means is that external developers or anyone who can code can write new programs for the handy that will give it whole new applications so that makes it quite versatile and adaptable as a bit of kit it isn't something that you're going to invest in and then find six months down the line that it doesn't work with all the exciting new saucy programs that you want it to. Yeah, I really like that flexibility, actually, because, you know, you can use it as a pretty straightforward sex toy. It is a sleeve that motions itself up and down and there's buttons on it and you can adjust the speed. And it is as simple as that if you want it to be. But if you want it to do all this other techie stuff, there's also stuff that you can plug in and there's a website to look at as well. So there's lots of options. Yeah, it can be as sophisticated as you like. So if you want to check that out, head over to thehandy.com and use the code FOXHOLE for free express shipping. That is the code FOXHOLE at thehandy.com. And thanks again to them. And if you check out my Instagram, which is at AlexFox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X at the moment, I am running a competition for you to win your very own handy machine for, for zero, for zilch. So you can get nothing for nothing. It's not often that Alex Fox offers free hand jobs through her Instagram, but it's happening now. <laughs> They're usually very expensive. <laughs> and with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador, courtesy of this missive from Richard Lewis-Jones, who says, Ollie, I've just donated a year's worth of beer money to The Modern Man. Thank you, Richard. I really look forward to it at the start of every month. The show just keeps getting better. Thank you, Richard. I was introduced to the podcast by my brother, Gareth. Thank you, Gareth. And I would love it if you can make him ambassador for Croydon. That's nice, isn't it? When someone confers such a great honour onto somebody else. I would love to, Richard. Gareth Lewis-Jones, I now appoint you ambassador for Croydon. May you continue to spread the good word. Until next time. Our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on August the 10th.
So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week weekday wherever you get your podcasts.